0: Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free. Decades ago, I started growing food in my front and backyard, and I realized that my mission in life is to inspire and empower others. grow their own nutrient-dense, healthy organic food. Because of this, a lot of people have come to me with their gardening questions over the years. And that got me thinking, what if we put together a community that would help budding gardeners blossom? So I finally made the idea a reality with my Urban Farm U member program. Each month, your membership includes three live online events, a monthly class, a chit-chat with an expert, and a monthly coaching session plus access to the experts on our member page and a significant discount on our signature courses. I'm deeply committed to transforming our global food system, and I do this by empowering you to grow your own food. The Urban Farm Membership Program is a simple way to get going. Please join me in transforming your food system today. To learn more, go to urbanfarmmembership.org or text MEMBERSHIP to 33444. Today on the Urban Farm Podcast, we have David A. Bainbridge to talk about his experience with gardening with less water. David grew up in a small town working in the family toy factory. Now, that's going to be an interesting story, David. Enjoying the rivers, mountains, and sage-covered hills that surrounded the factory. After earning his degree in Earth Sciences at UC San Diego, he headed to UC Davis to complete his Master's in Ecology in the multidisciplinary Eco Grand program. He started a company doing environmental impact analysis, then transitioned to a solar research and design firm where he worked on community design, passive solar heating and cooling, building codes, and solar rights. He eventually established the Passive Solar Institute to continue his research, education, and consulting on solar design and energy conservation. David returned to academia and worked on desert restoration at UC Riverside and San Diego State University, where his current research involves micro-irrigation, cool pool design, and true caustic counting. David also recently published a book called Gardening with Less Water, that was published by Story Publishing. Welcome to the show today, David.
2: Delighted to be with you.
0: Well, thank you so much, and oh my gosh, as I was reading your bio, there are so many things I wanna ask you. So I just shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at now?
2: Sure, I'd be delighted to. The uh, The story of my career has been like many careers, with Many ups and downs and sideways trails, but it's all been concerned about the issues of sustainability, mm-hmm. and uh, it's really guided all the work I've done—not just sustainability of water, but energy, community, culture, education, and oh. all the things that go with it. Mm-hmm. And uh, as uh, you noted, I grew up in a small town in northeastern Washington that was dry, sagebrush h country. Yeah. And when my parents retired, they moved to a small farm in Colorado near Mesa Verde National Park. And on that degraded dry land, I really started work on how to manage and restore dry lands back oh, in the 1970s. Right. And uh, I found that quite fascinating and interesting There had not been a great deal of work done on drylands restoration, and it just suited what I had learned in my Earth Sciences and Ecology program, Mm -hmm. and uh, had some positive results early on on their farm. And that uh, sort of kept me going and got me back into the university system. Mm. Uh, When I applied for a job as a manager of a nature reserve at the University of California Riverside. And although I didn't get selected for that, I did get uh, picked from that interview to work for the Drylands Research Institute at the University of California, Riverside, oh, nice. where the goal was this sustainable management of dry lands and uh-huh. deserts around the world. And that proved to be the real uh, lodestone uh, as we surveyed literature around the world, interviewed farmers, and brought in and interviewed researchers from all over the world and got a chance to see what they were doing and what they knew. Uh, one of the most interesting things to me always is how traditional societies manage resources. And these scientists often said, well, those are traditional practices and we don't study that because we only get money if we study high-yield intensive oh, agriculture. right. Uh, but they did share what they knew and that really got me going. Uh, we were lucky enough to be asked by the California Department of Transportation to look at their practices for landscaping on highways and freeways in the desert, where they had had a notable lack of success for uh-huh. 25 years. They'd spent millions of dollars on plants that died, and they finally said, hey, maybe we should ask somebody <laughs> to take a look at this, Right? and maybe we, maybe we can't do things the way we do out on the coast. So that's how we really got started, and uh, they were gracious enough to fund us for for many years and uh, supported a lot of my early research on irrigation. So that got me into 30 years of work on irrigation and desert uh, restoration, and the irrigation uh, ideas that we learned about way back in the 1980s really took about 30 years to fully evaluate and test. And uh, one of the most important steps was a book that my my boss brought back from China, an agricultural textbook
0: mm-hmm.
2: about 2,000 years old. Oh my God! Uh, only a few fragments have survived, unfortunately. But one of them had to do with uh, buried clay pot irrigation, uh-huh. and I was very lucky to have another professor at UC Riverside who had done his thesis on archaic China. So he could translate the measurements for me and I rushed out to the student garden at UC Riverside and planted my first clay pot irrigation project and worked so well and it's been a consistent success ever since.
0: Nice. Nice. Wow. Okay, cool. So I have, like I said, I have a bunch of questions for you. So. Tell me about your Master's in Ecology in Multidisciplinary ECOGRAD program. What is
2: that? <laughs> well, it was a wonderful program, and I think it still exists. It's uh, actually called the ECOGRAD um, program, oh, uh-huh. and you can take classes uh, from allied professors in many different departments. So you're not restricted to just one discipline. You can take classes across cross campus and that really suited me since I'm interested <laughs> in just about everything yeah. and uh, it really really helped shape my uh, approach to work after that
0: perfect i so go ahead
2: yeah we just had a, a very interesting group of professors at the time a very talented set and very inspiration as well one of my profs as was one of the tuskegee airmen oh wow and uh, a couple of really noted scientists who've sort of helped set the stage for uh, restoration work. So it was a, a really great time nice. and a chance to interact with other students from really different backgrounds as well. Right, And that's how I ended up doing my work on solar design. Uh, I really was fascinated by the micrometeorology and microclimate and had spent a lot of time working on that. And one of the other grad students started a solar design firm, and he said, Well, I need somebody who understands microclimate. So uh, I was able to get my first uh, job working for him, really, uh, doing work on uh, passive solar design nice. and research on climatology.
0: So you use the word microclimate just so that everybody knows. Could you define that?
2: Sure. Microclimate is really just looking at the, uh, the smallest scale of uh, climate rather than the big scale. So if you look in the weather uh, paper, in the paper, it might say the average temperature for Phoenix was 57 degrees. But if you looked around the different neighborhoods, from a cold drainage area it might be 30 degrees, and from a protected spot it might be 75 degrees. Right. And it's really a, a very fascinating part of understanding ecosystems is how temperatures shape the plants you see. And and how animals survive and how houses perform, it's really a micro scale issue mm. and there's a wonderful book uh, which is a little confusing at times because of awkward translation called "The Climate Near the Ground oh, which really uh, which really covers a lot of that mm-hmm. and uh, One of the advisors for our company, Solar Company, was an emeritus professor, uh Todd Newbauer, who had worked on microclimate and solar houses for almost 40 years and really done some inspirational work that still remains a little known and unfortunately uh, not as well appreciated as it should be. Yeah. So that, that was really great. I mean, there were talented people there who knew lots of things, but nobody was asking them what they knew until we right. came around, and yeah. it really worked out well.
0: Nice. Nice. So you mentioned a few moments ago something called traditional practices um say a little bit more about that what is that
2: yeah traditional practices are what have evolved around the world as all the different people who are facing the same challenges of water and food and shelter and energy come up with their own solutions that fit their local environment and uh, They're called traditional because they usually have developed without a scientific background and without reports, and many times they've been used for thousands of years, so they're very highly evolved. And one of the great things I learned is that you really have to respect these people (laughs) because they're intelligent, Uh Uh, they're outside looking at what's happening every day, and they often know a, a lot more than the scientists who are going out to the study of these things because they haven't spent as much time looking at them. Yeah. And really a great deal can be learned from just looking at those. And as with the scientists who came into the Drylands Research Institute, they often appreciated that, but they just couldn't get funding to study <laughs> traditional practices. Right. And fortunately I can say that's changed in the last 10 years. There's finally been a, a recognition that many of the things that people knew and do are are very sophisticated and smart, uh, even though they haven't been developed through a university or extension service yeah
0: like the looking into this notion of permaculture, maybe
2: absolutely permaculture and agroforestry yeah. uh, many of the complex practices are incredibly efficient and very productive. But they're not well suited to somebody with a tractor or a center pivot yeah, irrigation system, so exactly. we don't get to, don't see them studied as much as we should Yeah.
0: so why did you get involved in research on the super efficient irrigation systems?
2: Well, one of the uh, the challenges that we faced working for the Department of Transportation on our first project was we were working about a hundred miles from home out in the desert, it gets three inches of water a year, Mm. and there are no water sources, so every bit of water we had for our planting had to be carried out by truck, and that made it extremely expensive water, Mm. so every, Mm. every drop saved really made a big difference. So our goal became to use as little water as possible to keep plants alive until eventually it would rain. And we found that it could be very, very low quantities of water, uh, as much as some people might water in a day, might last for months, or even for a year if it was done right. It was done right, yeah.
0: So, you you mentioned the buried clay pots, or what I know them to be as Oyas, that's O-L-L-A. Uh, can you speak more about them and how they work, and...
2: Sure. Oyas are really what got me started on super-efficient irrigation from that Chinese textbook. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, not only used in China, but other places in the world as well. One of our visitors to the Drylands Research Institute has had put his children through school in the United States by growing melons on buried clay pots or oyas in Mexico. So oh. it's been around and it's used, but it hadn't been written up very much. So you put the uh, sealed... Or, Uh, a buried clay pot in the soil fill it with water and the water moves through the capillary pores in the clay at a very slow rate just kind of seeps out if you've ever wetted a a red clay pot you can see it turns a little darker color when it gets wet Mm -hmm. and the more water the plants use the drier it gets outside so water flows through the clay a little bit faster so it's a a self-regulating system oh, right. without any controls. It's just really a clay pot that's been buried.
0: Well, they have to be particular kind of clay pots, yes?
2: Well, they have to be porous, that's the main thing. <laughs> <laughs> and the traditional red clay pots that are used in nurseries with a hole on the bottom have the right porosity, so all you have to do is put a rubber stopper or a, a dab of epoxy in the hole and you can no, use those. Oh. And in the last couple of years, we've had a number of companies start making Oya's for irrigation in recognition of how efficient they are. Right. The two really big companies are uh, Deep Springs Oya's, or Dripping Springs Oya's rather, uh-huh. <clears throat> and, Uh huh. and Grow Oya, which surprisingly is a Canadian firm, but uh, has done very well in, in getting Oya's out into the market. And I just checked recently and saw that even Home Depot now is selling Oya's. So they may not carry them at all the stores, but they can be ordered uh, through their online system.
0: Interesting. Wow. So you've put a lot of this together in a book called Gardening with Less Water. And what are some of the other innovative systems that you describe in your book?
2: Yeah, there's uh, a number of them and they're all worth consideration. For many people, the best solution is a combination of uh, several of these different systems. So, one that's very similar to OI is called porous capsules, <clears throat> and these are just sealed pottery um, tubes, pipes, or bottles uh, that are filled with water through a system connected to a pipe system. Oh, interesting. And these have been used in, particularly in Brazil. So with the Rio Olympics on, mm-hmm. might be a chance to look at uh, what's been done with porous capsules. And those haven't been very well known because most of the literature was in Portuguese. Oh, interesting. And not too widely translated. Another one is a deep pipe, which is really just a vertically placed pipe without a bottom. So you can pour water into it and it goes deep into the root oh, zone with yeah. very little evaporation. And on our desert projects, that turned out to be the most common solution because it's very inexpensive, uh, works quite well, can be combined with drip systems where a drip emitter goes Mm -hmm. into the pipe, and uh, you can pull the pipes and reuse them over and over again for many years. So very effective system. And in the last couple of years, a company called Deep Drip now sells commercial deep pipes and those can be found at Home Depot as well.
0: Yeah, I, I, those are the ones that you pound oh. in the ground, right?
2: Well, they say you can pound it in the ground, but in our areas, the, uh, uh, you'd never pound it into the ground. You've got to dig a hole to put, a hole. The, put the yeah. deep pipes in. Yeah, I think that... And the deep pipes would typically be uh, 12 to 18 inches deep. And we drill a few holes down one side in case the roots on the plants we're planting don't go all the way to the bottom of the pipe when we start.
0: Now, is that for for larger plants like trees and shrubs?
2: Uh, very good for starting trees and shrubs, and if you use several of them, it could work for a, uh, to increase the root spread as the plants get older. People have suggested they'd like to convert an existing surface irrigation system to deep pipes for trees, but it's challenging to do it because the the tree is really adapted to surface irrigation if it's done that and it won't find the uh, right. the deep pipes very quickly. So it can be done, but it has to be done with care. You don't want to kill any larger trees. Uh, for a much more efficient system than uh-huh. deep pipes, uh, we start looking at wick systems and these use yeah, yeah, a yeah. piece of fabric or a piece of rope that will wick water along it. hmm And they can be used in several configurations uh, depending on the water need. The water can flow up through the wick, which is the most efficient way to do it. And it flows up by capillary action just as the water goes through the pipes. And those can be the most efficient systems of all. They're used occasionally for African violets, which are very sensitive to getting water on their leaves. All right. Uh, the other type of wicks uh, could be a gravity fed wick, where the wick is just attached to a small pipe at the bottom of a big reservoir, uh-huh. and the water runs down the wick and can go quite deep into the soil.
0: Those are like wicking beds. Little... Aren't those like yeah, wicking beds? Like wicking beds, right?
2: Uh, no, these are doing it rather than using a blanket or a fabric. These are just an individual wick. So oh. it's a little little more specific
0: and apparently they work fairly well
2: they work very well but uh, sometimes the water movement is not quite fast enough for a really rapidly growing plant like a pumpkin or squash Mm -hmm. uh, better adapted for things that don't use as much water or for young seedlings when you're just getting them started
0: yeah how um, how efficient are these uh, systems and and can they be used on a widespread basis do you think
2: Yeah, in terms of efficiency, it's one of the most challenging things to talk about with uh, irrigation systems in general, Uh since there are so many factors involved, and most of them are microclimate issues of uh, how the wind approaches the plants and how the soil evaporation takes place Mm -hmm. uh, and when the water is put on. But what we found and what we can say with confidence is uh, the buried clay pot systems can be up to 10 times better than surface irrigation. Oh, wow. And uh, better than drip systems. Um, Not a huge difference if a drip system is managed really well, but uh, more efficient and much more reliable. We actually started out using drip systems, but the animals chewed them up. Uh, They got plugged by insects. They got plugged by salt. They got plugged by algae. And they just didn't work. So after our first trials, we completely shifted away from drip.
0: Yeah, that makes sense, because it, it, it's, ah. it's, it's, it's something that's labor-intensive.
2: Yeah, it's management-intensive, I yeah. think. Yeah,
0: Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. You have
2: to have really it. clean water, and you have to stay on top of it at all yeah. times. So these traditional systems are meant for people who don't have time to do that. Uh, the beauty of the clay pots, you might only have to fill it once a week. And because the water is so... Concentrated, you almost eliminate weeds, and that's where they really pay off is yeah. is reducing weeds
0: yeah that's what that's what what I was going to ask you next because you talk about in your book about the incredible reduction of weed growth, and so
2: right on one one project we had two hundred pounds per acre with um, efficient systems and eight tons with flood irrigation
0: <laughs> of course well, and then at the so, same and at the same time the uh, those weeds are taking up all the nutrients, and you know, then you're throwing it yep. away, right?
2: They're eating your nutrients and your water, yeah. and it's, it's great if you can avoid that. Yeah. Uh, another system I haven't mentioned is uh-huh. readily available in stores, and it can be a little more efficient than standard irrigation, although it's not as good as these super-efficient systems, and that's what's known as leaky pipe or soaker hose. Mm. Uh, Usually made out of uh, recycled rubber, but now there are some that are being made out of uh, polyurethane as well. And uh, they can be very efficient, and they're just very simple to do for row crops, like a row of onions or a row of garlic. So I sometimes use those as well. And they can be done with just gravity pressure if you buy special versions of leaky pipe, which work at very low pressure. Yeah.
0: Interesting. Now, do you find that the pressure at the beginning of that system, a leaky pipe system, is different than at the end?
2: Yeah, and that's one of the challenges of doing it well. Uh, The manufacturing is not particularly consistent, and the pressure tends to be a little higher at the start of the pipe, so you don't want to have very long runs. It's better to have a fairly long a header to split the porous hose up or the leaky pipe into smaller sections so it's more consistent
0: yeah
2: oh and they also have to be uh, they work better if you flush them at the end of the year to get some of the salt Mm. and debris out of the inside right and some places they'll crank up the pressure on them so they pop off anything that's sort of built up on the outside of the pipe as well Oh yeah perfect
0: so our friend scott murray over in vista california I just recently found out that both you and I know him. He uses uh, drip tape. What do you, what's your feelings about drip tape systems?
2: Yeah, they can work really well. But again, he's doing it as a career. So he's out there every day making sure things are working. Uh, And that's the only real drawback to to the drip systems is they're really management intensive. Yeah works great for commercial farms and even for small farms and gardens Mm -hmm. if you're around to to take care of them
0: to manage them yeah
2: perfect and for for our projects where we started when you're 100 miles from home and you get there every two or three weeks uh drip systems just didn't work yeah
0: i can completely get that
2: yeah one of the other things that uh, we like to stress is the use of rainwater, Mm, and if you have super efficient systems uh, then to be able to do it at low pressure uh, with very little use of water means you can stretch out your rainwater as far as possible for your garden production. Yeah.
0: Perfect. So, why did you decide to write this book and who's it intended for?
2: Well, uh, my current book, Gardening with Less Water, is for everybody and particularly for home gardeners and small farmers, people who uh, have some tomatoes in a container on their porch. Mm-hmm. Really, just to make it easier for them to get things to grow and to use less water. And uh, in 2007, I wrote a big handbook on desert restoration. Oh. Uh, and it's really uh, much more complete, but at a hundred dollars for the hardback, not many people are going to going to find it affordable or yeah. useful. So, with gardening with less water, I looked for a company that delivers a really nice book at a reasonable price. Yeah
0: i I do, I do love stories, yes, I do love stories, books, and yeah you know, they they've got great titles and so congratulations on that. They're a great publisher.
2: yeah, they were really nice to work with and and really helped doing wonderful illustrations and photographs to make it as easy to understand as possible, yeah, and the best place to get it probably is on Amazon, Amazon. or ask your local bookstore to bring it in yeah. for you, perfect.
0: Perfect. Can you suggest any other web resources that will help our listeners better understand these systems?
2: Sure. One of the most useful ones is just my um, website, which has technical bulletins and all kinds of papers. Not just about irrigation, but also some of the other issues your your listeners are interested in. And you can find that just by searching under uh, David A bainbridge it's actually at works.bepress.com slash david underscore a underscore bainbridge yeah and there are a couple other david bainbridge authors so the david a catches the work i've done instead of what they've done yeah
0: i just so i just uh, sat down in front of google typed in david a bainbridge b-a-i-n b-r-i-d-g-e and you came up first so
2: Right, and we have a, a YouTube for people to watch that one of my former students did for me. Oh, nice. On how to set up a herb container with oil irrigation for your patio or porch. And this was produced by Seiko uh, uh, Rude, one of the great students I had. And it's uh, www.youtube.com. Watch? v equals V O I B. Q V X K S X S too much Yeah. so just look for Oya Irrigation and David A. Bainbridge and it'll probably show up as well
0: perfect, perfect and we'll have that on our show notes page as well
2: excellent so,
0: so I'm going to shift on you and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed how you overcame that failure and what you might have learned from it
2: uh, well one of the failures we had was uh, we were setting up a restoration class for the Society for Ecological Restoration uh, up at Red Rock Canyon State Park. And we'd been working frantically all day getting plants in the ground and ran out of time to put the tree shelters on, which we used a double-wall wow. plastic tree shelter, we yeah. found really helped with plants. And when we got back the next morning, almost all the plants had been eaten. Eaten. And I saw that challenges coming. Yeah, And in the desert, the jackrabbits particularly are, are a problem. So we got smart, and from then on, we made sure that whatever we planted got tree shelters the same day. And a few weeks later, we saw that the uh, the coyote had finally gotten this old um, jackrabbit. He was probably moving too slow because of all the plants of ours he so really not trying to push the limits, I think, is really helpful in whatever you're doing, whether you're working on the farm or in the garden. When you're yeah. tired, wrap things up nicely, put the tools <laughs> away safely, yeah. and go back the next day and, and get to it. So uh, one of the other lessons we learned in our restoration work, and it came kind of slow to me since I was at the time and a ferociously hard worker, is that people are volunteering, so you don't mm. want to completely wear them out as to be nice to your volunteers, give them some nice food, give them some breaks, make sure they stay hydrated and let them go before they're too tired. So they'll come back again another yeah. day. Perfect.
0: And what do you consider your biggest success?
2: Uh, the biggest success I think is the work I've done on super irrigation, uh, super efficient irrigation. Mm-hmm. Uh, it really has uh, become very popular and uh, spreading around the world. And if you look on the web now or YouTube, there are programs on deep pipes and oil irrigation and French and Portuguese and other languages around the world, and that, that uh, really makes me feel good. Yeah. Uh, the other thing is the little sideline hobby I had working on straw bale construction. Oh, uh, nice. It was never anything... Another thing I got paid to do, but it was of interest to me and was sort of my hobby for about 10 years. And when we did the first straw bale construction book uh, called The Straw Bale House, uh, the publisher thought it might, just might, sell 1,400 copies. Mm-hmm. And a few, a few years ago, it passed 130,000. Wow. So it's had a really big impact on uh, the straw bale movement. And even though I'm not very much involved anymore. It really was a great success and was very satisfying to see.
0: What was the name of that book?
2: It's just called The Strawbell House okay. with uh, Bill Steen and Athena Steen and David Eisenberg and it was uh, published by Chelsea Green and it's still in print and still available so nice. even though many of the techniques now are outdated there's yeah. 30 or 40 straw books that are better but it still was a very nice introduction to the topic. Nice. So
0: what drives you?
2: Well, it's always hard to ask that to any author, but uh, I just feel compelled to do this kind of work, and it's uh, satisfying to me. And I have enough books still to write that I'll have to live another 30 or 40 years <laughs> at least to get them all done. Yeah. And, and that's just satisfying. Um, when I was teaching, I think the biggest satisfaction was to see the students change in attitudes and change in ability in the times you got to work with them. And one of the most satisfying things is to hear from them today of of what they're doing and and the amazing things they've done. So that's a really wonderful thing about having the chance to be a teacher at some time in your life. Yeah,
0: I totally agree with that. Thank you so much for that. So I'm all about education, and I have to know, is there one book that has been influential for you in this process in your Mm -hmm. life?
2: Well, the book that got me to switch from geology to ecology is still an important one, and that's the Sand County Almanac by Aldo Leopold. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's still reading that anyone interested in resources or gardens or farming or forestry should read. Uh, Really remarkable insight and thoughts about uh, how things could be managed and, and what's important in life. And just recently, one of his daughters, Stella Leopold, wrote a little book about life at the shack in Wisconsin, where the Leopold family developed a lot of their uh, environmental restoration techniques. Uh And I'd really encourage people to take a look at that as well. It's just a delightful story of what it was like to grow up in that amazing family.
0: Wow. It's called Life at the Shack?
2: It's uh, Lessons from the Shack, I think. Uh, it's not in front of me at the moment. so. But just look up Estella Leopold and it will show up, I think. Cool. But it's a delightful book. Yeah.
0: Perfect. So what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners?
2: My final piece of advice would be to get outside and to pay attention to what you see. Uh, it's really important in the garden, uh, very important in... Life really to pay attention to what's going on around you. So pull out the earbuds, listen, look, and uh, always fascinating to see the things that are going on around us that we sometimes miss because we're too busy or too stressed. Uh, take some time to sit back and just look and see what's happening. Beautiful. Beautiful, beautiful. One of the things I do every day now, uh, which keeps me in San Diego, is a beach walk. Oh, and oh nice. We have a a local peregrine falcon family that lives Mm -hmm. in the cliffs. So one of the duties every day is to see what the peregrine falcons are up to and the the osprey and uh, all the shorebirds and the sea mammals that come along the coast. So one of the things that can get you going every day. Yeah, no kidding.
0: No kidding. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show and sharing your experience with us today, David. It has been a treat getting to chat with you
2: great delight talking with you as well and uh encourage your readers or listeners to uh, uh, to take a look at some of these materials and uh you know feel free to let me know what works and doesn't work as they go go forward uh the book is uh, gardening with less water is a really great place to start but if you can't afford that there's some really good materials free online as well
0: perfect and how can our listeners get a hold of you
2: just take a look at the websites, and it's got a connection, so they can contact me by email.
0: Perfect. We'll have that on our webs on our uh, show notes page.
2: All right. Great. Perfect. Thanks so much.
0: Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast.
2: My delight. Thanks very much. Great talking to you. Thank you.
0: Decades ago, I started growing food in my front and backyard, and I realized that my mission in life is to inspire and empower others to grow their own nutrient-dense, healthy, organic food. Because of this, a lot of people have come to me with their gardening questions over the years, and that got me thinking, what if we put together a community that would help budding gardeners blossom? So I finally made the idea a reality with my Urban Farm U member program. Each month, your membership includes three live online events, a monthly class, a chit chat with an expert, and a monthly coaching session, plus access to the experts on our member page and a significant discount on our signature courses. I'm deeply committed to transforming our global food system, and I do this by empowering you to grow your own food. The Urban Farm Membership Program is a simple way to get going. Please join me in transforming your food system today. To learn more, go to UrbanFarmMembership.org or text MEMBERSHIP to 33444. That's UrbanFarmMembership.org or text MEMBERSHIP to 33444.
1: We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast.